Hey, this is Tom Akins with Leading Edge North Carolina. You're listening to Aldersgate On Air. Welcome back, friends, to Aldersgate On Air. As we all know, the aging services industry is an ever-evolving universe, full of challenges and complexities, yet at the same time highly rewarding, with exciting opportunities and the possibility to literally change lives. And leading the charge to improve the quality of life of our seniors and move the industry forward is the organization known as Leading Age. This association represents the full continuum of not-for-profit organizations that are driven by a higher moral purpose to help positively transform the field from the ground up so older adults can age in place at home safely and with dignity. We are joined today by the president and CEO of Leading Age North Carolina, Tom Akins. With a career in the industry spanning over 25 years, Tom provides tremendous insight into the inner workings of Leading Age and its role in advocacy, education, research, and networking. Also joining us today is everyone's favorite chief brand strategy and community engagement officer, Aldersgate's own Brooks Shelley. Tom and Brooks share with us their perspectives on the rapidly shifting demographics of the industry, the ongoing workforce struggles, the challenges they face with changes in tax legislation, and the omnipresent battle with COVID, including the new Delta variant and vaccination protocols. They also share some ideas on what we can all be doing to help move things forward. So stick around for this highly informative and entertaining conversation. You'll thank me later, I promise. Now let's say hello to our guests. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks, Mike. Been waiting for this all week, and it's only Monday. (laughs) It's only Monday. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, where would we be without Brooks Shelley? Brooks, always awesome to talk to you. Same with you, sir. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Brooks. So we're going to do a lot of chatting about uh, leading age and some really cool things that are going on with that organization. But if you wouldn't mind, Tom, first, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself? You know, how did you come into the industry and how did you end up at leading age? Sure. So about 11 years ago, I moved to North Carolina from Kansas, where I had worked uh, in the aging services field for about 15 years. And, uh, This position opened up with Leading Age North Carolina, and I headed to the Tar Heel State and have not regretted it at all. My background is in public policy. I've worked for a congressman, although I don't admit that to a lot of people anymore, uh, (laughs) but had worked uh, uh, in the legislative process and for a mayor for a while and uh, um, kind of combined that with my love for aging services. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, I'm looking at uh, kind of your bio. There's a lot of really cool things that you've, uh, you've got going on here. And of course, you are the president and CEO of Leading Age North Carolina currently, correct? That's correct. You bet. You awesome. bet. Well, so for those folks who may not be 100% familiar with exactly what functions Leading Age serves, uh, would you mind educating our listeners on that? Sure. So Leading Age is a professional association of nonprofit retirement communities located in North Carolina. We're part of a larger leading age national organization, which has about 6,000 members across the United States and serves about 3 million people. Um, And so like many professional associations, um, we work for our membership and as nonprofit retirement communities, working for them means that we spend a lot of time at the General Assembly in Raleigh 
advocating for good public policy on behalf of residents and staff at our member communities. Um, we also do um, education throughout the year. We have an annual conference that's coming up in Wilmington. If we can get that pesky Delta variant to pay attention and not go too crazy, uh, that's August 17th through 20th. We'll have about 500 people there, um, and that'll be our opportunity to provide um, um, information and resources to our members um, at that annual conference. But then we do education uh, during the year for our communities as well. And that education takes the place of, of, um, of everything from working with our chief financial officers to our frontline staff, um, really trying to provide the latest trends for our communities so that they can serve their residents um, in a better way. Um, you know, it's it's probably apocryphal, but that great story about Wayne Gretzky's dad talking about why Wayne was such a great hockey player uh, was not because he w skated where the puck was, it's because he skated where the puck was going to be. And that's really what we try and do with our membership. We try and provide them with advice about where it is that they that they ought to be going. Um, and so that advocacy and that education is is a big piece of that. I'll tell you the two other things about our association that um, I think are unique as I visit with others. One of those is that we really see it as our role to try and connect our members, not only with each other, but with other folks within the, the field. Um, this group, Brooks can tell you this, um, this is a group of people that just really enjoy being with each other. And so a part of what we try and do is to facilitate that connection. The other thing that um, that we do, and and, and yeah, I'm gonna brag on them a little bit here, but um, if you talk to folks around the country, you will find that Aldersgate is the leader in any number of things, but really in terms of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And they, um, as much as any community in this state, any community in this country really have shown us um, the way. And so we, we have a separately incorporated foundation that uh, their sole mission is to support leading age North Carolina. Um, and at this point, their main priority is around trying to develop resources and tools and conversations for our member communities to have around diversity and inclusion and equity. There's just nothing um, that is more important for our communities right now. And so as an association, um, that's one of the one of the major things that uh, that we're trying to do. Yeah, and uh, Brooks, uh, obviously, I know that's right up your wheelhouse. As you and I have talked extensively about that over the last uh, year and a half or so, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Well, we rely heavily on leading age, both statewide and national. And Tom's exactly right. When we started our diversity, inclusion, and equity journey, education was exactly what was needed. And we found that there were a lot of our team members, constituents, residents that just didn't know what they didn't know and had always just heard periphery items that were on TV and on sitcoms and stereotypical. And that was the, the only exposure they had to any of these issues or any of these terms. So getting in front of them early and doing the educational piece was key especially on Autoscape's journey. So we, I appreciate the compliments, Tom. We are nowhere near where we want to be. It's an ongoing journey yeah. and it will be constant. And we, we look forward to it. We've made, we've made great progress, but with, 
we've got more to do. So uh, fortunately, yeah. we've got leading age to lean on, and leading age has us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you, you know, th- you're right, Brooks. This is a this is a journey. There's no endpoint that's uh, um, that's out there. But but I know that as we have have um, tried to figure out how we can be um, a resource, here's what we know. At the end of the day, if you've got a community that is more diverse, you're going to be better across the board, right? Exactly. Not just with your business model, but as a place for folks to live and work and be a part of the larger community. And, um, um, you know, for that, us, that, that's what that equation is really about. You know, and that's a great segue then into the next thing I wanted to bring up with you, which is the fact that, uh, you know, the, the demographics, they're shifting, they're changing, they're moving. So, um, you know, as it stands now, I mean, what do you think then uh, about the future of the aging population in North Carolina? Where is it going? Yeah, so, you know, nationally, if you look at things, um, you know, we probably all seen that statistic there about 11,000 folks turning 65 every single day. And, and that number is just going to continue for about the next 20 years. Um, in North Carolina last year, for the first time, we had more people over the age of 60 than we had under the age of 18. And, and, and that, that has huge implications for us, not only as a field in terms of how many folks there are out there to serve, but has um, huge implications for society in terms of our tax base, right, and how we're going to fund things um, uh, because we've got a, a whole lot more people that are pulling resources out of the system and fewer people that are putting resources um, into that system. So for us, what it means is trying to figure out from a tax policy standpoint um, the kinds of things that we can do moving forward. Uh, but the other thing, that, you know, I'll tell you, Mike, that, that's just so um, that's so interesting to me is that for us, this is not like, oh, my gosh, there are all these people that are turning 65 and there are going to be so many more people that are old. How are we going to serve them? This is a great opportunity for us um, and for communities like Aldersgate who know what the heck they're doing, right? And they're going to have more and more people that are coming their way. And while there are workforce challenges, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later, um, you know, this this demographic um, and and the wealth of knowledge and expertise um, that older adults in our in our society have is just going to be key. And and here's the other thing that. that for me, when, when we talk about demographics, that I just, I think is fascinating, right? I'm having this conversation with my dad, um, uh, who he passed away about three years ago, Alzheimer's. Um, um, but before he died, I said, dad, we're having this big you know, debate within the field about um, what do we call old people, right? I said, what do you, what do you want to be called? Do you want to be called elderly or aged or a sage or, you know, what do you, what do you want to be called? And uh, my dad looked at me and he said, I want to be called Keith, right? So it's, it's this desire on the part of everybody to figure out um, how you're still treated as an individual when you move forward. Um, And, and I will, again, I I mean, there's lots of cool stuff going on at Aldersgate, lots of cool stuff going in within the, with, within the field statewide. Uh, But one of those challenges that face us is with all these people that are coming towards us. Um, how do we continue to make that an individual experience for every person that's out there? Yeah. Yeah. Brooks, uh, you know, that, that's something that, that I've seen firsthand uh, when I visit uh, Aldersgate is kind of looking at the way 
people are approached and the way people are engaged. And that's something that your team does very well is, is engage with the residents. Are you finding that the, uh, the demographic shifts are affecting the way that say your staff is interacting with, uh, with the residents? Well, it, it may be a facet of my own aging because the age gap between where I am right now and actually becoming a resident is getting shorter. Yeah. So there's a lot more, not more great conversations I personally have. Uh, I like to tell people I have yet to come into work. I just come in and get to see all my friends. But there is, there's a story, multiple stories in every person that's here. And we did a, a production several years ago called Acting Our Age. And it had seven residents that wrote their stories down and got together as a group of the gerontologists for about a year and a half. And so they, they recounted everything. And even though they came from different ethnic backgrounds, geographical backgrounds, everything, there was a common thread. And they could always find the common thread between them. So, yeah, we, we are being pushed happily, willfully in the right direction with the new demographic age group that's coming in. And it is, it is an effort not to institutionalize. As an industry, I think we have pretty much just done a disservice of meds are at this, we eat at this time. The ba- Make it individual. That's you've made it to this point in life, you you deserve to have an individual experience that's exactly what you want. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I think that the the population we're starting to see, correct me if I'm wrong, but but folks uh, of, a, of a younger age group starting to consider moving into CCRCs and they do things like watch all the food channels and watch all the documentaries and they're more savvy about what's out there and yeah. the things yeah. that were you know, acceptable 20, 30 years ago, people are like, hell no, I'm not, no, exactly. I'm not up for yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you a specific example of that. We've got a marketing company that serves a number of communities around the country um, in this space. And they, they did a, uh, they did focus groups with about a thousand 65 year olds who had expressed an interest in where age and income appropriate to live in a CCRC, all that stuff. So anyway, they, they put in front of them eight different amenities. And they asked them to rank those eight in terms of what would make them more likely to move to a CCRC, right? So dead last on the list, number eight was food, which doesn't seem to make any sense at all, right? right. But, what, but what, they, what they told them was, look, we, we are from a different generation that, that I don't know about you guys growing up, you know, every night we ate dinner around the table, right? <laughs> uh, now... I can probably count on both hands the number of times I eat at home in a month. The folks that are coming towards us are not necessarily going to say, I want you to feed me every meal, right? You make available. I, 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 I don't want that. Number one on the list, the number one amenity that folks said would make them more likely to move to a CCRC was access to high-speed internet, right? Uh-huh. Which, just, which just tells you that this demographic is changing and it's a field we have to make sure that, um, you know, that, that we are providing the kinds of things that folks that are coming our way tell us they want. Because, and I know Brooke sees this, right? The folks that are coming to us now, they cut their teeth in the 60s, right? And it was protest. And if there was something you didn't disagree with, 
man, you let, you know, you wrote letters and you raised hell, you did all this kind of stuff, um, which is different than the demographic that we dealt with in the past. Right. So it's um, lots of, in addition to just the sheer numbers that are coming at us, uh, consumer preferences are really changing. Yeah. Well, and to your point, Tom, the, the embracing of technology uh, was such a godsend to us at Aldersgate because all of our independent living residents get an iPad when they come in. And we use an app on it called Wellzesta that gives you know, the schedule, uh, the dining menu. You can connect with others. You do, do a whole bunch of stuff on it. And then COVID hit. And we, mm-hmm. we were telling our residents to do the exact opposite of what we've been telling them forever of don't socialize, don't get out, stay indoors. And that connection was lost. That social connection was completely lost. And fortunately, all of them had their iPads. So we were able to keep them engaged and keep them at least feeling relevant because here we are with a a virus that attacks that demographic the worst. And so we were feeding content like virtual tours of museums in France and just different things to to constantly keep them going. And it, it really made a huge difference for us on the isolation factor. Yeah, I think the the embracing of technology has been a huge thing. And we'll talk about COVID a little bit later on again to kind of dig deeper into that. But uh, absolutely. So I guess the moral of that story, though, is, you know, always got to pay attention to those demographic shifts, pay attention to shifts in culture, what's going on in the world, what are people embracing, what are they comfortable with. And we are finding that a lot of people are now, uh, you know, acting in ways and, and embracing things that just wasn't a part of the past. So um, moving on from there, uh, Tom, let's talk a little bit about the the average uh, CCRC in North Carolina. Now there's the for-profits and there's the non-for-profits and they have their different regulatory environments and economic impacts. So let's just take a dive into that, if you will. Sure. So there are 61 continuing care retirement communities like Aldersgate, although there's really no place at uh, no like <laughs> right, right? So, but there are 61, 48 of those are nonprofit. There are 13 for-profit. And there are differences between um, that nonprofit and for-profit um, um, business model that, um, you know, we think traditionally you're going to find higher staffing levels um, at, at nonprofits. Um, you're going to find um, the, the biggest difference is that a for-profit um, has uh, um, a dividend that they've got to pay back to their investors. There's nothing wrong with making money. I, that's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is that for nonprofits like Aldersgate, there's no there's no time horizon for them. They're not doing things based upon the fact that I think we're going to sell in 10 years or we're going to sell in 15 years, right? Their time horizon is limitless, and it's about serving the residents that um, that are there. Well, all of those CCRCs in North Carolina are licensed by the Department of Insurance. And without getting way down in the weeds on this one, I think the thing that um, that residents and prospective residents of CCRC should take comfort from is that North Carolina has the stiffest set of regulatory requirements in the country. Um, and, that, and that's not a bad thing for consumers or for communities, because over the years, because there's an annual disclosure statement that CCRCs have to file, and more importantly, there's a reserve requirement in which communities like Aldersgate have to segregate in a certain fund a certain amount of their of their annual operating revenues 
what it's done over the years is just to make for a really financially secure set of communities, um, which I think um, consumers um, that we talk to take a great deal of, um, of comfort in. Um, and, and so we, when you put all that together, we worked with the University of North Carolina Business School about four years ago on an economic impact study. And what we said was, look, tell us what the economic impact of CCRCs is on the state of North Carolina's economy. Um, and so, you know, they assembled all kinds of data. And what they found out is that we've got um, about uh, 22,000 residents at CCRCs in North Carolina that are served by about 16,000 staff. And their annual economic impact on the state's about $2.4 billion, with a B, dollars every year. Then we, then we said, okay, that's great. Go out 20 years and let us know what, what you think it's going to look like. So in 20 years, they think that we'll have about 30,000 staff serving 35,000 residents with an annual economic impact that's just a little north of $3.5 billion a year. So, so what we have said to policymakers is, look, if you had a business in the state of North Carolina that employed 16,000 people and impacted directly, a lot more indirectly, but impacted directly 22,000 North Carolinians that had an annual impact on the state's economy of almost two and a half billion dollars, you would be doing everything you could to make sure that that field was successful. And so when we talk about advocacy issues, and, and we've got a couple that we'll, that we'll touch on, that's that's really what um, what what we try and say to policymakers. You know, if you look at advocacy 101, <laughs> it's really about nothing more than than recognizing that government is about at the end of the day, it's about making choices, right? And so so and so what our what our role is, and what we try and involve folks like Brooks and residents like those at Aldersgate. Um, in the legislative process is about trying to provide policymakers with good information, right? Um, trying to provide them with the information that they need at the end of the day to make good choices. Uh, because we think as we've talked to different, um, to different folks that um, that investment, um, whether it's through specific regulations or through tax policy, whatever, that investment the state makes in CCRCs, is good not only for the residents and staff that live there, but it's good for the it's good for the state as well. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit. I, I think uh, it's probably a good time now. We're talking about some current issues. Um, sure. Top of that list, I would say, probably is uh, COVID, especially with the uh, the Delta variant floating around out there. There's been talk of mandating some vaccines. So, what's the scoop on that right now? Where are we standing on that? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at any of our communities and, and Brooks, you know, I, he probably not along here in terms of if you look at residents at CCRCs in the state, their vaccination rate is probably 98, 99 percent. Almost all of our residents are vaccinated. Um, uh, but our, our staff, our team members, um, depending upon the community that you're at, um, um, you know, that vaccination rate is probably going to range somewhere between 55 and 85 percent with 85% being pretty rare. Um, and so our challenge is how do we figure out a way to um, recognizing, uh, again, the, the diversity of folks that we work with and that work at our communities, um, how do we make sure that we've got as many people vaccinated as we possibly can? Um, and particularly with the Delta variant now that's on the upswing, 
um, you know, what, what we've, well, here's what we see, right? For that resident population that is almost 100% vaccinated, there are still people that will contract COVID who have been, who've got both their shots, but the severity of their symptoms is so much less. And for many of them, they don't even know that they've got it. They're asymptomatic, exactly. right? Um, and so, um, you know, one of the things that, that the field is looking at right now, and in fact, about 55 um, uh, national organizations, including Leading Age National, came out this morning with a statement um, encouraging um, long-term care settings, healthcare settings, like continuing care retirement communities, to mandate the vaccine for for uh, current and and new employees. And I think you'll see a lot of discussion here in North Carolina. Last week, the North Carolina um, Healthcare Association, which used to be the Hospital Association, um, came out um, encouraging their uh, their hospitals to to uh, mandate the vaccine, and there were a number of them last week that did that. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess the last thing on this is just to to understand that one of the big challenges right now um, for communities is around workforce. Um, there just are not a lot of people out there beating the door down, not just at CCRC, but anywhere um, uh, to work. The workforce market is just so tight right now. There are communities that are concerned, gosh, if I mandate the vaccine, it's going to make that equation even harder. But I think what, what we have found around the country and talking to folks who've mandated the vaccine is that they may have lost some folks because of that, but it's not nearly the stampede that they, that they thought that it was going to be. And in fact, and, and Brooks, I don't know what, what you might share about Aldersgate, but my sense is that for those communities that have... Um, um, high numbers in terms of vaccination rates for their staff um, and for their residents. Um, a lot of them are using it in um, their marketing with prospective residents uh, in terms of it being a safe and secure place to be because they've got high vaccination rates. And it's interesting to, to think about the amount of residents that we had that vaccinated of the 98, 99% that we had on campus. The only ones that didn't that I'm aware of had underlying health conditions that prevented right. them from getting vaccinated. So we employ over 30 different nationalities here at Autoscape. And there is a, there's a two sides to everything, at least. And we just have to, to realize that a lot, of, a lot of cultures have a bad history with vaccinations exactly. and have, have not been dealt a very nice hand with vaccinations before. So there, there is that component that falls into that. So, and again, the Delta variant is all over the news. It's all over our brains. And it's, it is going to be an interesting issue to say the least. Yeah. And, and that, and, and, I, and Brooks, that's, 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 that's great in terms of that statement this morning on that leading age national and those other 50 five organizations, American Medical Association, American Nurses Association, um, uh, came out with, um, said that, you know, certainly there are going to be staff members that we have that don't get vaccinated because of cultural issues, because of underlying health issues, because of religious issues. And those certainly um, are things that we need to honor um, and make sure that, um, uh, that we follow through on on that promise to staff that we have around those kinds of things. Exactly, yeah. and it's a tough it's a tough call because 
we also have promises we've made to our residents and to their families and all their loved ones. So yeah, it's, it is a weighty decision. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's probably the hardest decision facing a lot of places right now is, is how to, how to toe that line and, and be respectful, but still at the end of the day, be able to do your best to guarantee a safer environment, not just for your residents, but for employees, for guests, um, you know, cause nobody wants to go back to, you know, full scale lockdowns and things like that. You know, this Brooks, you and I were talking, you know, uh, earlier that, you know, there's the possibility out there in the world, places are talking about going back to, to modified openings and things like that. So, uh, you know, it's hopefully we, we don't, we don't go down that road and, and obviously the, the best way to, to help the world keep that from happening is to uh, up those vaccination rates, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the governor does with his next executive order, whether we see anything um, come back into play, particularly around uh, masks. You know, early January of this year, we were rocking along at about 11,000 cases a day in North Carolina. Um, in mid-June, that was down to about 260. Uh, but since that time has um, has headed back up, certainly not anywhere to where we were at in January. But, um, you know, as, as we found when we got into this, um, we just have, have got to um, got to figure out what the best direction is going to be here. Well, and to your, to your point, Tom, we it, it's hot as Hades right now, but it won't be long before it's colder, cooler weather and people will be indoors. Yep. And so we run the risk of doing the exact same thing we did last year at that time of year with people are going back indoors and in uh, the air that's overturned in the house and, and the rates go up. So yeah, yeah. Mm. it's a weighty, it's a weighty decision. <laughs> well, uh, moving away then from, from the COVID, obviously we could probably spend hours and hours and hours and hours talking about all that, but um, that's good. You know, also tying it in with the workforce challenges, we've all acknowledged that that's definitely a, a challenge and a, among many of the current issues out there in the industry. Um, Tom, uh, you wanted to mention something as well about some challenges with the sales taxes, correct? Yeah, one of the, one of the um, biggest roles that we play for our communities is just around tax policy um, and making sure that the General Assembly and other policymakers has good information so that when they make decisions, um, they're relying on, on the best data that, that can be provided. Um, many CCRCs, like Aldersgate, have a monthly service fee that they charge to residents. For the last 30 years, that monthly service fee has not been subject to sales tax. Uh, but about a year and a half ago, there was a random audit. Um, every year, the North Carolina Department of Revenue randomly audits about 5,000 taxpayers, some individuals, some businesses. They randomly audited a CCRC, and when the field auditor got out there, um, he said, oh, wow, there's a lot of revenue we could be getting. So he went back to the department, and they, um, they assessed the, the, the community in question um, a, couple of, a couple hundred thousand dollars in uh, back taxes and penalties and interest. And then about... Five months later, they assessed another community $4.3 million in back taxes and uh, penalties and interest uh, for something that the state had never done before. And, it, and we just don't think it's good tax policy. Basically, what they said was, 
you know, they zeroed in on food and they said that um, residents at communities um, needed, you needed to charge sales tax on the meals that they ate at that community, which would, and again, not getting too far down here in the weeds, but, but communities like Aldersgate pay sales tax on that raw food that they bring in. Exactly. So it would be as if, you were telling a resident at Aldersgate, hey, I know we're taxing you on the food that's being prepared. We're going to tax you again when you eat it. And it would be as if you went to somebody who lived in the larger community and said, we're going to charge you sales tax at the grocery store, which currently happens. But when you prepare that meal at home, we're going to come in and we're going to tax you on it again. <laughs> so anyway, we, we have been working over the last couple of years with the General Assembly um, to try and... Um, provide them with good information. Um, we had some legislation introduced this year that would um, basically um, exempt um, that monthly service fee from, from um, sales tax within the state. Um, and we've seen some good progress during this session. The House is getting ready to introduce their budget um, here in the next couple of weeks. And, and we are hopeful that between now and the middle of September that we'll um, meet with some success in, in having those concepts that were in the bill, namely, you can't charge sales tax on the monthly fee, um, that, that those will be put into, into statute. Because at the end of the, uh, gosh, I say at the end of the day a lot, don't I? <laughs> ah, I got to come up with something new. Anyway, here's the deal. Um, bottom line, if, if the department is allowed to charge sales tax on the monthly fee, um, that state sales tax rate is about four and three quarters percent. The When you throw in the local uh, units of government, their ability to charge that sales tax, you're talking about for folks like Brooks and Aldersgate, um, you know, close to a seven and a half percent increase in their cost of doing business, which is just ridiculous, ridiculous when you realize that the state is flush with cash right now, right? They have, they have pulled a lot more in in revenue than they thought they were going to. They have gotten lots of money from the feds as it relates to different things from COVID. They have been able to put more money into their um, rainy day fund. This, this would be a completely different conversation if the state was way behind on tax collections and they were trying to figure out how are we going to provide essential services? That's not, that's not the way it is at all. You know, we've got a policy that, that has never changed in 30 years. Um, that that uh, just doesn't make sense to do right now. So we're optimistic that um, that this will work out um, well for our communities. Well, and to go back earlier to something that we discussed on this, if you look at at what a CCRC brings in, we've got one source of income, and that's our residents. So they will be the ones that have to end up paying for this. And add this regulation and this sudden viewpoint on, on charging it right on top of a pandemic on a virus that targets that demographic. Is it any wonder that there's depression and a feeling of isolation and irrelevance? So it, it is really, it's ridiculous to begin with, but it's really poor timing. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Mike, one thing that, that Tom does extremely well with Leading Age is every year we go for Advocacy Day. And all of the Leading Age members come together at conference in D.C. 
and they handle scheduling all of us with our legislators. And we go and we actually present, rely on us as the, as the experts in the field because we are the frontline people. Let us tell you about the issues that our elders are facing. Let us tell you about the issues that are impacting them. Let, them, let us tell you how it is on this side that you may not be aware of that may actually change how you vote and what, what causes you champion. And it is a blast. There, there are some of us that are just like, advocacy day, yay. <laughs> and we, we have a blast going because it's, it's your chance. It's your chance to be heard and to advocate on behalf of our elders. And this demographic, once again, back in the 60s, they would protest. If you want a population that votes, they vote. Especially the ones that had to actually fight for the right to vote, females, minorities, they vote. And they show up at the polls more than the younger generation does right now. So legislators would do well to listen to, to what our elders say. We all would. Yeah, for sure. Well, that that's a, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Brooks, because um, I was going to ask uh, Tom a couple of things. Um, you know, in regards to now, what can be done to either help combat some of these challenges or how to address some of these challenges? How can uh, us out there in the world kind of help uh, promote some of these changes and get some of these messages out there? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. And I, I will tell you that that. Um, you know, we, we try and tell whether presidents or staff or um, anybody that there's, there's three basic things I think that you can do. And, and this all stems, you know, personally from being raised in a family that, that treated public service as a noble profession, a noble cause, right? And I, and I know that the, the current political environment can be so corrosive. Um, but, but I, you know, I think that there are you know, no matter which side of the aisle, which side of the issue you're on, there are three things you can do. The first one is you can stay educated on the issues, right? And and that's that's a that's a commitment that you have to take that you're going to try and figure out um, um, how you can stay uh, uh, committed in terms of reading up on and aware of what those issues are that face, um, in particular, aging services. Um, I, I think it's really important. Uh, number two, that you stay connected with policymakers and with elected officials. And what that means is that um, that policymakers need to hear from you. Your elected official needs to hear from you, not just when you're mad, right? Um, you, you need to be reaching out to them to say, hey, I saw that you did this. I really like that. Or thank you for doing this. Or, hey, I want to let you know what's going on with, without just waiting for something to go wrong. And so whenever they hear from you, your hair's on fire, right? Um, and, th and then, I, I, you know, I think the third thing is that you just – you just need to stay active in terms of consistent outreach. And, 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 there's, and there's, there's two ways that that can take place, right? We all hear about grassroots, which is you get a whole bunch of people together and, and numbers do matter. I, I can tell you, working for a congressional office, um, you know, if you got more than 15 or 20 calls or letters on an issue, it was a hot deal, right? So, so numbers, numbers matter. And, and so that grassroots um, efforts are, are so vital. Um, but but at the other end of the spectrum is this is this notion of grass tops advocacy, right? And so grass tops advocacy is really about who do I know because 
they were a business partner or they were a next door neighbor or they used to teach Sunday school or I was in synagogue with them or what, whatever it might be, right? Who now has impact on the process because they're an elected official or there's somebody that has some influence. And so it's really important, for example, um, um, if, if you are at Aldersgate and you are the next door neighbor of the Senate Finance Committee chair at some point, to let Brooks know that, right? Because you're always looking for an opportunity to be able to, I mean, people, people listen to friends, right? They listen to people that they know and respect. And so while numbers are important, um, I, I, I'll tell you a, a, just a very quick story. We, we were working on, a, on another issue and we were having trouble getting through to a particular legislator in terms of just getting a response back. And they apologized profusely, but they said last Thursday on this particular issue, they got more than 10,000 emails. Damn. 10,000, right? There's no way you're going to break through that crap um, and, and try and get to that one nugget of information that's out there. But that's, you know, that's, that's where, we've, where we've come, particularly in terms of, let's see how many numbers we can generate. They're impressive, but sometimes they, they crowd out the other stuff. So your ability to be able to identify folks who know people within the system is just really important in terms of trying sometimes just to, just to break through the noise. Yeah. You know, those tips are great. Uh, you know, stay educated, stay connected, stay active, whether or not you're a resident at a CCRC or you're a citizen just out there in the community, or you're an administrator or an operator or a member of the C-suite or a president, this or that, regardless of what role you play in society, keeping ahead of all of those issues and communicating those and just kind of keeping with that sense of community, everybody out there can play a part in, in making sure that we can advocate for the proper things to happen through the proper channels. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I, will, I will tell you that, that we have a number of, of communities and residents and staff members who do that really well, but there is nobody that does that better than Aldersgate in part because Suzanne and her team have figured out that power that exists uh, behind uh, collaboration, right? And behind providing good information to folks. And, and as, as a result, there are so many things that you see on the campus at Aldersgate or efforts that they're making in the larger community that are reflective of their understanding that, man, if you stay active, you stay educated, you collaborate, work with others, good things are going to happen to you. Absolutely. So, uh, Tom, final thoughts. What do you want to leave the listeners with today? Um, I think uh, probably what a fine-looking individual Brooke Shelley. That's a given, right? Right there. There you go. Um, no, I, I, you know, I think if I was going to leave you with something, it, it, it would be this. Um, it can be very easy uh, nowadays to get discouraged about the discourse going on in our country. Um, and it is, it can be so coarse, so acerbic. Um, you know, when I was in college, I had an introduction to logic class. The only thing that I remember from that is fallacy of bifurcation, right? And it's this notion that um, for any issue, there's, there's, there's only two possible solutions. It's either here or it's here, right? When in fact, we all know there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. And so I, I guess the thought I would leave you with is that it, while it's easy to get discouraged, man, hang in there. Hang in there. Make your voice heard. You know, make sure that 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 what you believe 
that you are able to relate it in a in a kind way, right? I still think kindness counts for so much, and people listen to it no matter what. Sometimes uh, it looks like our leaders are doing. Um, it would be just just hang in there. Don't don't go away. We need you and your voice. Yeah, Brooks. How about you, man? What do you want to leave us with today? I would add right on top of Tom's comments. Don't just advocate for what currently affects you. Because if you're fortunate, it will affect something else is going to affect you in the future. So don't just don't just react to what personally directly impacts you. You you can stay educated and advocate for those things that don't personally and directly impact you. Because at any point in time, you never know when it will. Awesome. Words of wisdom, folks, to live by for sure. So, uh, uh, Tom Brooks, I want to thank you all for hanging out today on Aldersgate on Air. This has been an awesome, informative, educational, and fun conversation. And I, I assume I'm going to see both of you probably uh, in Atlanta in October, right? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And you can look on our website when the podcast airs for links for more information. Absolutely. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Akins, Brooks Shelley, Thank you guys so much for hanging out today. Thanks, Thank Mike. You. Thanks, Tom. Take, take care, guys. See ya. And thanks, as always, to all of you out there in radio and podcast land for hanging out with us on air today and for being a part of the journey. And if you're at the Leading Age North Carolina Conference in Wilmington, August 17th through 20th, keep your eyes peeled for Tom. Let him know you heard him on this show, and I'm sure he'll sign some autographs for you. There you go, Tom. I just added one more thing to your to-do list. You're welcome. If you'd like more information on the topics we discussed today, check out the website at aldersgateuniversity.com forward slash podcast for some awesome links that will help you get going in the right direction. And don't forget, send us your questions, comments, thoughts, and ideas to onair at aldersgateccrc.com. So until next time, stay safe, take care, and we'll talk to you soon at Aldersgate On Air.